this. This is... Decompensated. Hi, Alex. Hey, Adam. And hello, everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Decompensated, the official podcast of the Liverfellow Network. Yes, we made it. We made it. So, Alex, do you want to break down the uh, the itinerary for this podcast? Yeah, um, I would love to. And obviously, this may evolve with time. Um, we'd love any feedback you have. But um, the first segment is usually going to be us uh, discussing something that we have relative expertise in, uh, which is very little, as we mentioned in the intro episode as well. Um, but uh, today, we're going to be going through some of the top 10 tips uh, from the Liver Fellow Network at liverfellow.org, spicing them up with some of our thoughts. Uh, and then in the second segment, every time, it'll be an interview with an actual expert with expertise, aka uh, an attending, often a transplant hepatologist. Uh, and we'll go through some interest of theirs, but also something that's pertinent to us as residents and fellows. And then the last segment uh, is currently referred to as the freestyle segment, where we will briefly talk about something that is very much not medicine related. How does that sound? That sounds pretty good. I think that's 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 it. That is the itinerary. Um, so today we're going to start by highlighting uh, a post on the website that we that was that went up I think the beginning of July mm-hmm. um, to coincide with the, the start of uh, all the new GI fellows matriculating in, um, and it was the top ten tips for new GI fellows. Alex, you are no longer a new GI fellow. Congratulations, you're now in your second year. Thank you. How does that feel? I just look at the new fellows. I even think of the new fellows as my salvation, um, and I can't thank all of them enough. If you're, if any of you are listening right now, uh, first of all, get some sleep. They're deaf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Respond to that, to that page. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but thank you for what you're doing, so that yeah. I can be here recording a podcast now. Yeah. There's. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your. Thank you for all that you do. Um, and welcome, welcome to welcome to fellowship. Yeah, you know, it's an exciting time. That's what they keep telling um, us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. To be determined. Um, okay, so I picked out a few, or we picked out a few yep. of the uh, of these tips to highlight. Um, and so I think what we should do is we'll just I'll just read um, the tip, and then we can kind of riff on them a little bit and give our experiences. And just you know, to clarify, I'm a, currently a third year fellow. Um, so I have that, that extra year of wisdom and expertise, um, that Alex is lacking. Yep. Although in reality, um, as you won't know on a podcast, I both have more gray hair and less overall hair, but Adam has, (laughs) uh, um, the, uh, the, the wisdom of time and training. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, so yeah, so this post from uh, liverfellow.org, yep. top 10 uh, tips for new GI fellows, um, where all of us, uh, we all contributed to this. We kind of came up with a concise sort of uh, 10 tip list of things that we kind of wish we knew or things we learned from our first year. Um, and the first one that I picked out um, has to do with feedback, which is always kind of a bugaboo in academic medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And the tip is, uh, with your attendings, discuss a certain area uh, of focus for improvement each week. Ask for specific feedback at the end of the week. This helps guide your attending to give you feedback for what you want to improve on. And I picked this one um, because, A, I think it's 
definitely a good idea to sort of, um, you know, sort of formalize your approach to obtaining feedback, but also just discuss how difficult getting effective feedback is in, in any training, not just, not just GI fellowship. There's nothing mm -hmm. particularly, uh, um, lacking about gastroenterology. It's mostly, this is just something that's, that's part and parcel of, of, of uh, medical training in well, general. Feedback is something I feel very passionately about as well. Uh, and was a real interest of mine from med ed perspective during, uh, med, med residency. And the, the one, the few things that there's a real consensus on is that, um, you want to prime the person getting the feedback, uh, and it needs to be sort of clear that feedback is happening and the more specific it can be, the better. Now, what I like about this is while it's not ideal, for receiving feedback in general, you as the fellow, the person who wants the feedback, can do most of those steps yourself in that you can prime yourself by basically telling your attending what you want feedback on and try to make what you want feedback on as specific as possible. And so one way I really like to do this is with endoscopy, which is right before an endoscopy, you literally say to the attending, this is what I'm trying to work on so that they are focusing on that and then can give you specific actionable feedback right after. And so you don't even need to wait till the end of the week. You can try to sort of uh, put it in a few times uh, during the week. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you're sort of leading the horse to water a little bit, but still able to get kind of what you need need out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think in, having never been an attending, but, you know, having been a senior resident and having to give feedback, it's really hard to kind of... Um, I guess focus on one one particular issue. You know, you feel like you have to give the give someone feedback on everything, but by sort of narrowing your focus, you make things a lot easier for the uh, the faculty that you're working with mm -hmm. to, to get a sense of what you really need and what you really want out of out of a specific encounter, a specific endoscopy, um, and hopefully obtain the feedback that you know makes you a you know a better fellow or kind of makes you feel like you're you're getting what you need out of the interaction. Yeah, perfect. Um, and if you guys have any things that you found very successful, um, just let us know. Uh, we'll talk yeah. about how to get in touch with us at the end, but let us know and we can definitely share those uh, during the next episode. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So one from me. Uh, remember that every, Here we go. Yep, yep. <laughs> Buckle up. Uh, <laughs> remember that every time someone is paging you with a question, they are asking for help, which means that a patient needs your help. Some teams may not be able to articulate a clinical question, so it's your job to use the opportunity to educate the team and assist in patient care. Yeah. And I think this is nice as sort of something to remember um, because any day of your entire first year of fellowship before or after about 3 p.m. or any day of your first year of fellowship after about October of your first year, <laughs> uh, you will get angry unbeknownst to yourself and for unclear reasons when you just see pages that seem out of place. But remember that you were once a medicine resident that may have been calling consults that you didn't necessarily agree with. And in reality, the patient who's at the way end of that page is having the worst day of their life. And so keeping that perspective uh, is very good in sort of checking in with yourself and making sure that you don't get too uh, riled up by anything. Uh, and also is quite helpful in terms of making every interaction with sort of a team and patient, um, an educational one instead of a, uh, contentious one. Yeah. I think that's the most important part is that it, these pages, while they can be significantly frustrating, 
also serve as an opportunity for you to teach. And I know that at three o'clock in the morning, that is not always the most opportune time for you to deliver, you know, some sort of clinical pearl or some kind of sage wisdom. <laughs> but you, you, you sort of operate as, you know, you can sort of a kind of discuss why perhaps a specific page is, is unnecessary in, in a very nice way. And so maybe prevent one of your colleagues from receiving a similar page mm -hmm. in the future. Um, but second, it also serves as a teaching opportunity because someone obviously was concerned enough to, to page you about something. And if it's not an emergency, that there's it, perhaps the person who, who sent the page doesn't realize that. And that's important. That's an important, I think that's important information to know. It's important knowledge to have. It's like, you know, when, when to page, when, when is it an emergency? You know, when, when do I need to get GI on the phone at three o'clock in the morning? Um, Never is the I, answer I that, for all you yeah, medicine correct. residents yeah, listening. Yes, I, yes, yes thank you. <laughs> keep, it, um, keep it till morning. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's always, you know, it's always nice to hear from your friends, your friends in the emergency department. <laughs> Just a nice hello. Always. <laughs> always. All right. Um, should we do the last one and then take our break? No one's expecting you to be an advanced endoscopist on your first day, let alone six months in. Faculty expect you to struggle, and in fact, this is an important part of the fellowship learning process. And I, I picked this one because I remember being a resident, and I was on a GI consult elective, and one of the fellows at the time you know, was explaining fellow, the GI fellowship process to me, and for whatever reason, you know, one of the things that she pointed out was that it didn't matter you know, how good at procedures you were, that you would learn to be an effective endoscopist throughout your fellowship. And I honestly am not sure why uh, she gave me this bit of advice, but it has stuck with me. And I leaned on that uh, throughout my first year because the reality is that endoscopy is an extremely challenging thing to learn. The degree of d the learning curve is very steep. But once you get there, you will look back and you will be, you will cherish the early days and remember uh, the struggle. And everyone struggles. You are not alone. Uh, I have, you know, we've all floated through the sigmoid for seemingly forever. And Is there more colon after the sigmoid or it's just sigmoid? I, you know, for <laughs> it's a good question. I'm not sure we know the answer to yeah, that just yeah. yet. We'll ask uh, our expert but, during this segment, too. Yeah, maybe we'll get some, yeah. <laughs> um, but we've all stood there sweating under our gown, now in our N95 mask, our face shield, wondering if we'll ever find the lumen again. It happens to all. We all struggle. It's part of it. Everyone expects you to struggle. You should not feel bad about it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's all very good. And I, I won't say much more on this. I think the one thing I will say is that endoscopy is also probably the most exciting part of first year of fellowship in a lot of ways. That and signing off on patients, that's the other most exciting part of first year yeah, of fellowship. that remove from list button is like uh, It's a delight. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 a therapist in the form of a right click. <laughs> um, but uh, it... <laughs> um, it, it's really fun and it's the first time that you're learning a whole new physical skill from scratch 
uh, since like elementary school <laughs> or middle school in a lot of ways, um, because a lot of the procedures that you learn in sort of uh, medicine residency are just sort of one step after the other. It, it's more of just learning a few tasks that happen to be physical, whereas endoscopy is really a new physical skill with muscle memory uh, and reps that are necessary to become good at it. And so it is really fun, as Adam sort of referred to as the steep learning curve, to watch yourself going up that curve um, because it's super rewarding. It's also fun to actually be able to do something um, when you see a patient that's struggling. Um, and so endoscopy is a very fun part of first year um, that I'm sure you guys are already enjoying if, if you have started or something to look forward to as you're uh, starting the hellacious process of applying for fellowship right now. Right. There are very few things in internal medicine that give you that instant gratification, but you can certainly get some instant gratification from an endoscopy with like a, a polypectomy or, you know, if you're doing hemostasis, stopping a bleed that is like, can be really, really rewarding. And um, it's a really, really fun part of our job. Yeah. All right. So those are a few tips from two non-experts. <laughs> right. So um, take that. Take that with however much salt you wish. Yeah. Hopefully you were listening to that part on uh, 2X or even 3X. Um, but now slow it on down because in segment two, we have our first ever expert interview. Stay with us. Very happy to introduce and say thank you to Dr. Kathleen Viveros, who's one of the transplant hepatologists at Brigham and Women's, for being our very first guest. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your practice as a hepatologist? Well, thank you, Alex and Adam, for having me here. I'm very, very honored uh, to be your guest and decompensated. I have a practice that is mostly clinical. So a lot of patients that I see are patients not only from the Brigham community, but also from the general community in Boston, some patients from my old practice uh, where I started at Tufts, and also patients that are admitted to the hospital and just looking to have new hepatology care, which surprisingly is quite a few patients. Interests for me include fatty liver, but generally all forms of chronic liver disease. And yeah, former educator as a former program director. So really love working with fellows like yourself. And we all enjoy working with you. <laughs> now, as you've alluded to, you were a program director. Yes. You're now a transplant hepatologist at Brigham. And I'm just curious in your distinguished career with many accolades, where would you place being the first to compensated guest on the list? I mean, I don't I don't have children. So yep. okay. right there, <laughs> it's getting above that. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think pretty much right after graduating from med school, mm -hmm. maybe number two. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, another, if I hadn't graduated from med school, I wouldn't be on the podcast. So yep. I think that has to take a little okay. bit of Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I think that's a reasonable place for us to be. This podcast is my baby, so <laughs> here we are. But so the main focus that we wanted to have today was to talk about the topic on front of mind for everybody, covid and I, I'm curious, as the pandemic has sort of taken shape, and we've obviously experienced some of it together, how has it sort of affected both your practice as a hepatologist as well as as a medical educator? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really interesting for me because 
I was just kind of coincidentally uh, for the month of March on the smorgasbord of what my job at the Brigham Mm. entails in terms of inpatient service time. So I was over at UMass for a week uh, in early March and then at Brigham and then uh, we do rotation at MGH as well for transplant just to have extra transplant exposure. And so it was really quite interesting for me in the month of March as week by week, if you can remember, things were just changing. Guidelines were, you know, being modified day to day. And I was, you know, getting emails about, well, we shouldn't be gathering in groups of, you know, 50 and we shouldn't be gathering Mm -hmm. in groups of 20. And here am I rounding with the transplant team (laughs) in the selection committee meeting. And I'm looking around, I'm like, should we be doing this? Because it was so unknown. I think that's, that was the part about it that I think people really took hold of in March. And so it was interesting for me to see different institutions kind of approaching it differently, but also as time went on. And when I was at MGH, I uh, was part of a chant group that was run by ID and ICU and really just talking about patients and a noontime conference and, you know, hearing about the sickest of sickest patients, as you know, Alex, because you were taking care of these patients. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts too, but just kind of incredible biology and physiology that, you know, we sort of all remember from med school and trying different things that we think might work. I mean, certainly I wasn't doing any of that because my role as a hepatologist was just like, yes, you know, it's okay to give remdesivir. (laughs) It's okay to to do these things. But it was really eye-opening to sort of see how that sort of evolved during the inpatient part of my liver life. In terms of outpatient practice, you know, things just stopped. So clinic Mm -hmm. kind of stopped. Our patient phone calls seem to stop too, um, Mm. for better or worse. You know, I think that some people who probably should have gotten some care, maybe just held out and didn't reach out. And other people who were your usual, you know, six month kind of stable folks stayed away. But it was very interesting to see now, especially three, four or five months out, how people have dealt with a pandemic from a a personal standpoint uh, with their liver disease. and then. As an educator and how I dealt with the pandemic, I found it interesting to be both, you know, I think we all are doctors to our patients and we know how to play that Mm -hmm. role, but then we're also oftentimes the doctor in our family (laughs) and the doctor in our friend group and the doctor in, you know, our sort of building and HOA and like, you know, all of these different arenas that we live in where people are asking for our opinion, like, what do you think? And oftentimes we're just going by what we're hearing in the news and trying to trust Mm -hmm. resources that we can kind of vouch for. So I think it was interesting as, you know, educating my family. I think that was a little bit interesting in terms of just telling them to stay home and wash their hands and having these debates with them about the whys. For education as fellows and trainees, I felt like the liver training sort of took a pause and I focused more on sort Mm. of their self-care, I think, when I worked with fellows. You know, how are you dealing with this? How are you dealing with the fact that we saw this person yesterday and now when we round on them this morning, they have a COVID flag, <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. So I, I don't think that anyone really focused too much on, you know, the differential for, you know, AST, ALT elevations greater than a thousand. I mean, <laughs> we sort of did when it came to COVID, but in general, we're yeah, mostly yeah. just focusing on, at least I was focusing more on how everyone was doing mentally and health, 
health-wise. I and everybody else appreciated that. It sounds like you you sort of got the full experience in yeah. a variety of different inpatient settings as well as the outpatient setting. And remembering back to March, it seems like every day there was sort of different information we were getting for ourselves and sort of how we should care for ourselves yeah. as well as sort of information about virus. Um, but now at least we have the benefit of still very much, unfortunately, being in the pandemic, but having a little more insight into different aspects of the disease itself and the way that that potentially interplays with a lot of different aspects of our practice. And I would love to dive into that a little more with you. In yeah. terms of your patients, you sort of alluded to you have one patient population that's more sort of pre or post transplant, it sounds like, and then another with chronic liver disease. Yeah. Is there anything first for the chronic liver disease people that you're specifically doing or looking out for in the context of sort of everything that's going on now? Yeah, I think that, you know, we're fortunate to have been a little bit behind the pandemic in terms of other countries that are, you know, known for excellent medical care in Europe. And so we were able to, you know, the recipient of a lot of knowledge that kind of went before us in terms of things like immunosuppression, for example, and patients with mm -hmm. autoimmune liver disease and kind of realizing that, you know, for the most part, patients should pretty much stay on what they're on, you know, and I had a lot of questions about that in terms of my outpatients, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a grocery store worker and I have asthma and I have autoimmune liver disease, should I be working? You know, and we don't have any information yet that's very reliable yeah. about sort of an increased risk of infection in patients with chronic liver disease, but certainly when they do, or if they do contract COVID, they can have a sort of more tenuous course depending upon how sick they are. So it was really just recommendations about the general sort of cautious precautions, you know, washing hands and things like that, that I was giving my outpatients with chronic liver disease. Mm -hmm. A lot of times patients, you know, would ask my fatty liver, you know, how does that affect me getting COVID. And yeah. it was really challenging because a lot of the early studies were coming out in a lot of the public press too, like obesity and diabetes. And so many of our patients with, you know, NASH and NAFLD have those comorbidities. And so it was hard to, you know, balance the advice of you may be a little bit more sick if you get this with the try not to panic. Um, because I think panic was sort of everywhere, at least in the beginning in March, at least for us in this area in New England and in Massachusetts. So it is it is interesting to see, again, how things may be changing across the country. And I wonder, like, if different parts of the country are sort of experiencing our March, you know, currently and how things went with their patients in the outpatient setting and questions that they're getting. And all of this is sort of just being replicated over and over again, then hopefully they can use, you know, our best practices to help manage all those questions in the outpatient world for sure. I guess that gets to a different point, which is sort of in an unprecedented way, there's been both within the medical community, but also very much with outside the medical community, a massive amount of information dump, articles, many academic pursuits, all sort of looking at COVID, both for any imaginable patient population, but also sort of targeting how we should potentially be even treating or interacting with patients. And so has there been a particular strategy of yours in terms of how to sort of keep up with that? And then the logical follow-up is sort of what aspects from the literature have most impacted your management of your patients? Yeah, you know, I have to say I I was not really so into Twitter ever as I was during the <laughs> beginning of COVID. I felt like that was what a lot of our colleagues were using. 
a lot of mm-hmm. what my friends were using across the country to sort of educate ourselves. I think we were, you know, using that resource to get a lot of information from Italy in the very beginning, mm-hmm. what was being published there. So certainly that was one of the resources. ASLD has put out a lot of topics on COVID and some forums and initially like in March, April sort of had some of these discussions that were available online for people to sort of just listen into initially our own division. And then sort of, again, the sort of national societies would put out sort of these seminars and webinars that they would have Mm -hmm. available. So of course, like in the era of Zoom meetings, everything kind of became sort of accessible, which was good. I think word of mouth through not only, again, Twitter, but just friends within the community, the hepatology mm-hmm. community and former fellows of mine and former colleagues of mine, kind of sharing their own knowledge from articles that they've read, from practices that they've done in their hospital was sort of initially the way. And then I think, you know, journals obviously started getting a ton of ton of article submissions, you know, articles that we tried submitting have, you know, been going through and trying to get pushed through. So I think just early releases on, you know, things like New England Journal and Gastro and Hepatology Mm -hmm. were sort of what I utilize or resources. Up to date, just recently had a a liver section that was... uh, Yes, I I may or may not have read it today in preparation uh, for this interview. By this (laughs) or in fits. So yeah, I think, you know, that's what will happen, I think, over time is that as the journals end up getting more and more, you know, submissions with a larger number of patient populations. And I think initially that's the hard part, you know, when you're trying to tease out what information is true. Can you can you actually use that and compare it to a US population if it's a study from, you know, China? Can you compare mm-hmm. it to New England if it's, you know, a paper that's done in New York? Um, you know, there's there's certain differences with certain, you know, socioeconomic classes and transportation issues and hospital access issues that make it not mm-hmm. necessarily uh, comparable, but I think it is the best that we have right now. So, and it's going to continue to be a growing field, no question about it. Yeah. Taking your own clinical experience over the last four or five months, plus all of these other sources that you've had, has there been any sort of major change with your transplant patients, either pre or post transplant? Yeah. I mean, I haven't been on service. So in terms of the acute transplant population, mm-hmm. so I, I can't say for, for certain that there would be anything different from the recommendations that I know, you know, initially, sure. basically it's kind of business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there's been a lot more attention to trying to, you know, ensure that patients are COVID free in the hospital and pre and post transplant, of course, I think in the non-acute transplant uh, recipient setting. So in the patients who are chronically, you know, suppressed, who've had their transplant many years ago, there really hasn't been much in the way of change for me. It's just keeping their immunosuppression guided by their liver enzymes or by, you know, their drug levels as kind of Mm -hmm. I normally would. And, you know, being very vigilant about them practicing social distancing and, and the practices that we talked about. Sure. So it sounds like in the acute pre and post transplant setting, it's doing everything humanly possible to keep them away from COVID and sort of the post transplant process after that time, it's keeping them on as much immunosuppression as is safe and only adjusting that in the context of either exposures or actual diagnosis has been sort of your practice. Yeah. So if they have been, you know, if they have been infected with COVID, then uh, from again, 
the knowledge that we have out there based on some studies is that you should try and minimize a little bit of their immunosuppression, keeping in mind that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a fine balance. Of course, steroids have been, you know, shown to be one of the drugs that are helpful potentially in treatment of COVID. So that in that sense, that's probably a good thing in the very acute (laughs) transplant setting. But, you know, you obviously with patients at such risk for you know, all kinds of, you know, pulmonary infections at baseline when they're that immunosuppressed, mm-hmm. you really just cross every finger and hope that they don't get COVID in that setting. So, yeah, I think the hospital practices have changed and testing patients while they're admitted and, you know, making sure that all of us are wearing masks while they're in the hospital also is another practice that has been very beneficial because the in-hospital transmission rate, I think, is very, very low. And for patients who are in the perioperative period, you know, you don't want them to be someone who gets COVID from their caretakers. Uh, That'd be horrible. And then the last group of patients that I think Adam and I were both interested in talking about is those with alcohol-related liver disease. And I think there's been some, it sounds like some early data to suggest that maybe this is worsened during this period with one of the hypotheses being that there's just generally increased alcohol consumption during this period. Is there anything that you've sort of observed from the alcohol related liver disease sector? Yeah, I think, you know, it's caused me to really reflect on the scope of patients that I've seen throughout this in regards to, you know, again, being on inpatient service and seeing patients who have been admitted with alcoholic hepatitis and, you know, talking to them, talking to patients who have had that experience and and realizing that, you know, it's just been a hard time. You know, their meetings Mm -hmm. are closed. They can't really go to AA. They don't really have access to therapy because they don't really want to talk to their therapist in their house when other people are around. So, you know, all of these sort of little hurdles that we kind of maybe don't have a window to, they're really sharing with us. And, you know, one of the things that remained open were liquor stores, um, aside from grocery stores. And so, Yes, people can go through withdrawals if they stop drinking, so I can understand that. But it is mm-hmm. also one of those things where if you're not at work all day and that was something that you used to cope with stress, it's readily available there. So I definitely had the sort of inpatient experience of alcoholic hepatitis patients mm-hmm. and a few who we, you know, sent home with, you know, one week discharge instructions to kind of return back to clinic virtually who have not returned. And so mm. kind of makes you wonder, are, are they following up? You know, are they, are they following up with their local doctor instead? Because it's easier. Um, you know, we just don't know, especially the patients who are new to us as sort of new admissions, never been seen in our system before. And that outpatient follow-up appointment, which we know is so important in chronic liver disease or any sort of decompensated cirrhotic, the follow-up really just hasn't happened in a couple of people that come to mind. So that's sort of the inpatient setting with alcohol use. I think mm-hmm. in the outpatient setting, uh, again, a variety. I think the the next group of people that come to mind are the patients who have known alcoholic liver disease and who are, you know, have had a history of alcohol-related cirrhosis, who maybe have stopped for a while and then restarted in the setting of COVID. And not necessarily to the point of drinking to, you know, getting admitted for alcoholic hepatitis, but definitely consuming Mm -hmm. more than they should. And similarly, kind of having the roadblocks to therapy, having the roadblocks to kind of getting their usual support, but kind of maintaining, you know, they're not 
they're not really drinking more than they should, but they're just drinking back up to what they were. And then the last group of patients that I think is really interesting are the patients who have, I would say, non-alcohol related liver disease who have then decided that this is sort of their own stress release too, that this is their, you know, outlet for, you know, what's going on in the pandemic, the kids being at home, schools not opening and doing what I think many of Americans have done, which is, you know, have that glass of wine, maybe not at five, but maybe now at three o'clock and maybe another one with dinner and then maybe another one after dinner and, you know, women drinking more than what's recommended per guidelines. So I do talk to my patients with Mm -hmm. any sort of liver disease about their alcohol use. And I do routinely ask them any new or worsening depression or anxiety as part of my review of systems. And I have to say, I feel like many of them are a little bit more open to talking about it, um, which I'm Mm. happy to see, you know, talking openly about, yeah, you know, I'm definitely drinking a little bit more than I should. And then it becomes sort of the, do you feel like you have a, you know, a difficult time with stopping? You know, how is that? How is that going for you? And sort of talking a little bit more about that. But yeah, it's very, it's very unique because a lot of times too, you also will physically see patients in their home. You know, when you're doing these out mm. visits, and you kind of, yeah. you get a window into like their kitchen, like how many people are walking in the background, and you know, it's, it's either a calm environment and kind of soothing, or they're in their den, or they're in the middle of the kitchen, and there's like you know five people just kind of bustling around, like, don't mind me. I'm just talking to my doctor yeah. here. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, it's been, uh, opening. I have to say to have this, you know, pandemic kind of bring us into patient's world in a very different way. I agree. And I, I think it really resonates with me, the degree to which sort of this pandemic in a lot of different ways, as you sort of mentioned, is particularly hard when one of your coping strategies may be alcohol use, both because of availability and a lack of sort of most of the social supports and general supports that exist for people with alcohol use disorders or even just a proclivity to drink a little more. Um, I'm curious, have you found any good resources for patients? Yeah, you know, I actually, I did look online. The CDC does have resources. Mm for patients to kind of walk themselves through sort of if you google like alcohol and covid one of the one of the websites will be the C- CDC and i think it is very patient centered which is good and it kind of goes into you know do you think that you need help versus do you know someone in your life who might need help a lot of mm. helplines and phone numbers you know i try to tell patients if possible to reach out to a couple of patients that I've had have had former therapists. They didn't see any more. I think therapists are being inundated nowadays with the (laughs) pandemic, but a lot of times that resource is something that at least they feel familiar with, especially the ones Mm -hmm. who sort of felt like they had things under control and then kind of took some slips back. You know, they sort of lost touch because they thought they had it in control and now they might need that resource again. So I encourage them to reach out to that you know, familiar face. And then, yeah, I, I personally use our services at Brigham quite a bit. The bridge clinic I think is awesome. Um, and I kind of just outline it to patients that it's, you know, a variety of things. It can be a group therapist. It can be a talk individual therapist. It can be medication to help you stop with cravings. Like it can be whatever you need, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that that does seem to the patients who have gone have really, really 
thrived in the multidisciplinary mm. setting for substance use and substance abuse. So I, I, you know, I don't know that many places have that kind of a resource, but I would say if you do have the ability to tap into that resource, it does so much of the heavy lifting in terms of the therapy and the medication and the support group too. Yeah. 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 And I think the other thing you sort of mentioned that I'm now thinking about over here, but as we assume our listeners that are not direct relatives of Adam and myself are mostly going to be sort of residents and fellows. And so there's, it's probably immeasurable, but invaluable how much just having your doctor check in to see how you're doing. So I think it's probably worth thinking about people within each of our practices that have a history of alcohol use disorders and just reaching out to see how they're doing, because I think that probably would be very helpful as, as you alluded to doing for your patients. Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately with the sort of transition into being an attending, you sort of end up having a, a much larger patient load. Right. Certainly. <laughs> um, I mean, I wish that I had the time to call all my patients and see how they're doing. But I think as yeah. a fellow, especially as a first mm -hmm. year fellow, when- Second year now. Yeah. <laughs> no, any, I'm talking specifically- I've retired. <laughs> I'm talking to the first years and I'm going to get to the second year. Okay. First years, listen up. <laughs> first years, listen up. You've had about seven patients in your clinic at this point. <laughs> Let's be real. By the time, uh, yeah. you know, this podcast airs, maybe you'll have 25 patients in your clinic. And given the prevalence of alcohol-related uh, liver disease out there, probably, you know, third might have an issue. So yeah, definitely reaching mm -hmm. out to them. For the second and third years who have a larger panel, I also think it's a good idea too. Especially yes. those with liver uh, interests, Alex, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, well, thank you. I mean, I think that covered a lot of what we wanted to talk about. And we really appreciate your insights on all things COVID and liver disease. But before letting you go, we did want to do a quick lightning round. You're our first lightning round recipient. This is going to be a variety of questions, some HEP related, some very much not hepatology related, some insightful, most not. Are you ready? As ready as I can be. All right. Well, we'll, we'll start out with uh, some easy ones. And unfortunately, for, I think for some of our transplant hepatologists, we're really hanging them up with this, but not you. Um, when did you last perform a colonoscopy? Uh, approximately 1130 this morning. Okay, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that may be the case. What is the most number of bands that you've deployed in a single case in your career? We're talking successful deployment on the tissue intended. Sure. I mean, because otherwise I could say I've done 14 or 20, but... Uh... <laughs> no. um, I think 10. There, okay. was, there was once a 10, a tenor. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Is there one area of hepatology that's most interesting to you right now? Yes. Fatty liver. Okay. Yeah. A question that I'm looking forward to the answer of, but is, can you sort of think of a time where luck factored into your career trajectory? Oh, yes. It's luck, but also like an unfortunate kind of luck. <laughs> oh. Let me digress. So when I 
when I left fellowship and was looking for a real job, initially I looked in many places and was always kind of measuring the distance of those places to Boston. Like, oh, Philly is only mm. like number of hours away. And, you know, New York is only this number of hours away. Because I'd actually never lived in Boston, although I grew up in Massachusetts. And then ultimately I was just like, well, why don't I just go to Boston? <laughs> and so I did and ended up at Tufts. And when I started there, I had a great transplant program, one of the first in Boston. And then slowly over time, unfortunately, the numbers started to go down and the transplant program basically stopped doing transplants while I was there and felt a little bit like, oh gosh, this is something that I came here for. What am I doing? And as luck would have it, I had a very outstanding mentor in the name of Marshall Kaplan, who is one of the giants in hepatology and uh, one of the leaders in primary biliary cirrhosis at the time, which is now known as cholangitis. He didn't get to live to see the change, but he was there. And I asked him, you know, what am I doing? You know, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do liver and now we don't have a transplant program. And he said, you know, the one thing in academics is that one thing is certain is that everything is always changing. Nothing stays the same. And at the same time that the transplant program left, I was sort of at the very beginning stages of being program director. And I felt like that was an opportunity for me to take on a different aspect of my career to say, you know, what is it like to sort of be an educator in this way? And even though I wasn't sort of exposed to the transplant population anymore, I was still seeing, you know, liver patients and also being the program director at Tufts. And so that was a sort of chance that was, again, unfortunate on the one hand, um, from one aspect, but I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to stay as a program director there for about 10 years and really learned so much about myself and mm -hmm. how different people learn and to be willing to see things differently than what you think they should be, you know, learning that there's more than one way to do things basically is what I learned. Fair enough. Yeah. It's not very lightning. Sorry. That was more like tornado, torrential downstorm, <laughs> torrential down for <laughs> and hurricane wrapped into one long answer. No, it's, it's good to know that there's still a lot of exploration and changes that happen sort of after fellowship yeah. because at some oh. point, both Adam and I may actually get a job, uh, <laughs> at which point we will uh, need to, uh, you know, progress yeah. professionally. But one thing I do say, there's never anything after a certain point in life, there's really no wrong decisions. Because even if you make a really bad choice and go to a job that you only stay in for a year or two, you learn something from that. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, you walk away being a little bit more, you know, attuned to what you like, what you don't, and you can move on. So there's never any bad choices after a certain point. Adam, you hear that? It means that we only have a few more years of bad life decisions and then, uh, and then we're free and clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've been doing it for this long. Why would we give up now? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, this is great to know. Two more years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Switching massively degrees uh, back to our lightning round. This yeah. is the slowest storm in history. <laughs> So what's the what's the last book you read or last movie or show you watched? You you get to pick which uh, medium of culture you would like to tell us about. The last book I read, I think the last book I read, which is very sad, was The Martian, like in February. Sure. <laughs> Not, I yeah, didn't yeah. read it then. I read it like this year, and it was actually yeah. uh, it was kind of cool because it was right on um, the way back from 
my trip in Argentina and it was pre-COVID because it was February. And a lot that of- That was a well-timed <laughs> trip was, to Argentina. It was number one, well-timed. Number two, I'm like, am I going to have to survive on the earth without any resources? And if so, I'm going yeah, back yeah. to the Martian. The last movie I saw was Sunday. I saw Selma in honor of okay. John Lewis, which I had not seen before, which I thought was excellent. The last TV show that I watched, like the very last one to completion just now was CNN. But the last non-news show was Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which is way more sure. interesting for your listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not caught up yet, so don't spoil, Alex. No, Adam, Adam, do not spoil this. <laughs> Some highbrow TV. There's, no, there's yeah. no need. Um, LA, don't spoil the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I won't. <laughs> Yeah, his face was familiar, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the, the book and movie, The Martian, but particularly now it feels very foreign because I think the like overarching theme of that is the importance and trust in science and expertise, which uh, we may have lost somewhere along the way, but it's good to know in fiction we still have it. <laughs> what is your favorite liver cell? Um, I... I love a bile duct cell. I love a cholangiocyte. You know, mm. it's it's cuboidal. It's kind of cute. Um, it does a whole lot. Gets affected by a lot, so it's kind of <laughs> sensitive. But it's also okay. Alex, it sounds like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. But also very sturdy, and it can proliferate. <laughs> under attack it grows so that's good yeah all right well we've kept you for a long time one last lightning round question so our audience is likely either as we call them hep committed or likely hep curious people um, and so is there any advice for sort of residence fellows that fit into the hep curious category oh my gosh number one i mean look at us there, there's no advice in podcasting quite like, look at us. This is a visual <laughs> medium. <laughs> no, no, no. Liver disease is, I think, very rewarding because of the, uh, obviously the awesome journey that you can take patients through to transplant. I mean, it's amazing mm -hmm. to see people leave the hospital with all their color back, like color that you didn't even know they had because <laughs> you've been taking care of them for months. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, you actually look healthy. That's beautiful. It's also... I've, I think you have to have the pachant to have difficult conversations. So if you really enjoy getting down deep with patients and really kind of being their advocate, there's no other disease like liver disease. If you like to talk, can we swear on this? Like just talk. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's like launch with your patients. You can do that. <laughs> do that with your patients, you know? And I think, I don't know, there's a little bit of an edge with liver patients that I find really relatable, you know? And there's just so much variety within liver too. I mean, you can have a patient on your panel who's hep B and pregnant, and then someone else is going through chemotherapy with abnormal liver enzymes and, you know, an alcohol related liver disease patient who's been struggling and then one who's recovered and doing great and, you know, basically doesn't know why they keep seeing you. And I mean, it just never ends, you know, it's, it's so fulfilling and it's so fun and you have a biopsy to prove things too, which is so rewarding and medicines to treat things like hep C. I mean, that's like Nobel prize winning. So why you would even want to do anything else is beyond me. Yes. Well, Thank you again to Dr. Kathleen Viveros. You are now officially our first guest. So thank you very much. You have survived. Thank you so much, guys. I really applaud you for taking on this huge, huge task. And uh, it's been fun. I would love to come back and talk 
you know, about anything liver-related or non-liver-related at your leisure. So we're back with our final segment. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview. And this is going to be a very short segment each time where we talk about something that has nothing to do with medicine whatsoever. It could be a book one or both of us have recently read, a movie we've seen, anything like that. And I, I will just tell you what Adam put in the in the outline because I've been excited for <laughs> hours after seeing this. Uh, but he just wrote, I want to talk about Hamilton. Have a very, all caps, mildly spicy take. And I mean, that uh, a very mildly spicy take. So I hope everybody's sitting down. If you're driving and listening, your seatbelt should be on anyway. If you're walking around, make sure your mask <laughs> is held tight to your face. Um, I will preface this by saying also that I have neither seen uh, the movie or play Hamilton or listen to any of the music, but I did read the book uh, that the play was based on. Really? Um, So I have at least a foot to stand on. But uh, with that very long intro, Adam, I cannot wait for your very mildly spicy Hamilton take. Take it away. I have to say, I'm actually, I'm very disappointed that you haven't seen or heard of it because I feel like it's going to take away from our our uh, our repartee here, but th- that's fine. This is like the the mild uh, Taco Bell sauce of takes on Hamilton. So, well, we were supposed to go see it until coronavirus hit. I had never seen it before. We ended up watching it around over the Fourth of July on Disney Plus on, on Disney, Disney Plus. Plus. Yes, we we watched it on Disney Plus, and I have to say, the the thing I took away from it, other than that, it was two hours and 40 minutes and yep. I was captivated the entire time. So how long would you have wanted? Well, I think that was good. Like, I don't think it should have been any longer, but it could have been longer and I would have kept okay. watching it. <laughs> I can tell you the book is about yeah. 35 hours. Did you so. need to drink a water after <laughs> so, reading it? Was it like dry? Uh, honestly, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Sorry. Yeah, good, so I don't good, even know. So actually when I, <laughs> when I came up with this take, I thought it was mildly spicy. And then I, I realized that it, it's probably not even spicy at all. Um, and that my, actually my favorite part of the, or one of my least favorite parts of the play was Lynn manuel Miranda's performance as Alexander Hamilton. Okay. And I thought that the, and I wrote their names down that the actors sure. who played Aaron Burr and specifically the, the actor who played Lafayette, and um, Thomas Jefferson like blew him out of the water. So it was David Diggs who played Lafayette and Jefferson and Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr. Okay. So I thought like, wow, this is going to be a hot take. Yep. And then I realized that the guy who played Aaron Burr, Leslie Odom Jr., actually beat Lin-Manuel Miranda out for the, the Tony Award as I was doing some research for our episode today. So pretty disappointing take overall, but I think it has a little bit of spice to it. Yeah, I'd put that in the very mildly spicy category. I, um, <laughs> like a de-seated jalapeno. Both of the other people you mentioned have now gone on to have increasingly blossoming careers. And, and uh, I think Lynn uh, gets, gets yeah, some added credit for having uh, written the entire thing. Right. Um, but I have also heard that after he left the show, the, the Hamilton character was slightly more explicitly talented, um, but there's a certain dynamism to Lin-Manuel Miranda's performance. Yeah, I don't want to say I'm disappointed by the take, but uh, I thought you were going to be like Aaron Burr is the one who's misremembered. (laughs) Or or something good. He does kind of get a sympathetic treatment in the... He gets a sympathetic treatment in the play. More like nuanced than I would have anticipated. Sure. Um, Well, 
That is our first uh, freestyle segment. <laughs> if you have any thoughts on Adam's take, I think the best way to deal with that is to put it right into a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as your review, and we'll read it there. Yeah. If you have an idea for what you'd like us to talk about in the freestyle segment or really segment one or two, if you want to do our job for us, please, please. do. You can always reach us on Twitter. I'm at Alex S. Vogel. I'm at Adam underscore C underscore Winters. We can't wait to be back. This is it. Yeah, we can't wait to be back with yeah. episode two. But thank you so much. Yeah, everyone. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye, Adam. Bye, Alex. Thank you again to Dr. Kathleen Viveros for bravely being our very first guest. Big thank you to our faculty mentor, Dr. Arpan Patel, and thank you all for listening. Please check out all of the great content from the Liverfellow Network, including our show notes, at liverfellow.org. Looking forward to talking to you.